Welcome to this week's episode of Being Bookish. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, introvert, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and ex-coffee addict. As you may be able to tell, this week is different to my usual episodes, so let's get straight to the content you're here for. Well, first of all, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. I know that things are really getting busy for you in the next couple of weeks with the promo tour across all the bookstores and everything, because it's your first book in 18 months is coming out next week in the US. It's the Is it the first time books of, your book has come out as a big release in the US? Yes, yes, it is. Yeah. And yes. only love can hurt like this. And every time I hear the title, I hear the song. <laughs> <laughs> well, the song was what gave me the idea for the title. So so that's a good thing. <laughs> no, it's, it's an appropriate, I think that every video I saw when people were talking about the book coming out, every video I saw had the soundtrack of only love can hurt like this. And it really fits. So I've read the book and actually I've now read it twice and I absolutely loved it. So for everybody who hasn't read it yet, uh, what's it about? Oh, thank you very much. First of all, like twice, that's a really good sign. Um, So this is a story of Ren, uh, who at the beginning of the novel, in the prologue, she witnesses the moment that her fiancé realises that he's in love with someone else. Um, And then you pick up again with Ren in chapter one and it's three months later and she's still quite heartbroken and she decides to go and spend some time with her dad and step family, uh, step family on the farm in Indiana. And, um, and whilst there, she bumps into a very hot man called Anders, um, <laughs> who is the brother of the farmer who lives on the farm next door. And it's like an old family farm. You know, they've had it there for nearly 200 years. And Anders is home because his brother's, you know, struggling with his mental health and he's home sort of to support his brother. Um, and he and Ren, well, Ren develops feelings for him. Like there's an instant attraction pretty much on her part. Um, but he always sort of holds her at arm's length. And later you discover why, you know, he's got this whole sort of secret, you know, which is making it, it, it it's an impossible love story, basically, you know, it's an impossible situation, which, you know, for them to overcome. And when Ren finds out what it is and she's just absolutely, you know, her head is blown. <laughs> I'm not, that's the thing. It is such a emotional twist I mean almost I think every book has a twist in it and this one is particularly devastate emotionally devastating for everybody concerned I'm not going to go into the plot twist because you need to read the book but was it something that you had an idea for before you wrote the book or was it something that happened as the characters developed I think the idea itself like I've had you know this book came of lots of different ideas but that specific idea I had longer than any of the others you know that idea I actually got the idea for that um well it was remembering you know something that had happened when I spent some time in Indianapolis myself the book is set in Indiana and Indianapolis and you know I spent some time there in my 20s and I remember um hearing about this this scenario you know that happens and I heard about it again in recent years which you know it happened to someone someone like a friend of mine and she knows someone else who it happened to and I just thought that scenario is just like I cannot imagine a more heartbreaking scenario if you were part of a love story that had this situation at its core and it just you know I couldn't stop thinking about it and 
yeah. And when I was thinking about the title and when I was thinking about the song and only love can hurt like this, or just like this would be the perfect fit, mm-hmm. you know, for those, you know, that scenario and this, this, you know, title to, to come together. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I mean, that particular twist, sometimes you can see them coming and you think, I need, I, I need it to happen because this will build the story and it will develop. But when this happens, it's like it was sudden heartbreak and you just feel so much of Ren's pain. But at the same time, you can understand where Anders is coming from. And I, I loved his brother as well, Jonas. <laughs> he oh. was incredible because he was, <laughs> as you said, he had he has mental health issues. And they are obvious and his girl, his ex-girlfriend was horrific, but I think she was meant to be. And you see his development. He is kind of helped by Ren's presence because he's so focused on Anders issues that his own kind of get not put away because that's unhealthy. But he kind of is so focused on other people that he's not thinking about his own problems at the same time. Yeah, I think Jonas is having, you know, he's sort of, I mean, I've got such a soft spot for Jonas, you know, yeah. he's one of my favourite characters in the book, you know, I really love him at some stage, you know, I'd love to like maybe write a spin-off story that has him, you know, as the main character. Um, Jonas, Jonas's mental health is what has brought Anders home to the farm, and normally he wouldn't leave Indiana, Indianapolis, he's a race engineer for an IndyCar team, you know, it's the middle of the racing season, he normally would not be at home at all over the summer. He'd be too busy going to races and just yeah. working full time. Um, so it's that, you know, it's the fact that he has this, you know, he's duty bound and honor bound to his family and, the, you know, this care for his brother that brings him home. But it's interesting because you sort of find out later, you know, that it wasn't always like that. It used to be the other way around, you know, as they were growing up, Jonas is the older brother and he would be the one who'd look after and take care of Anders, you know, when they were struggling yeah. with their dad and, you know, growing up on the farm. Um and, you know, you sort of find out later that maybe there's a little bit more of that going on than you realise, you know, that, that you know, Anders is, is struggling and, and Jonas can see that. And, you know, he certainly does go through, I mean, you know, I've, I've known people who, you know, struggle with depression and I know that it can be something that it doesn't necessarily hang over you like a dark cloud that is there permanently for, you know, months and months and months, you know, there are lighter moments, you know, you can struggle with it. It can, you can come through and you can go back into a dark phase and, you know, it's not, it's, you know, I was kind of, aware as I was writing this that he kind of comes out of a very very dark period really quite quickly over the space of the book but you know I know that 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 does happen you know that you can kind of like come out and maybe go back in and and farming and depression I mean if depression is very very common amongst farmers I mean it's got farming in it as a as a um as a profession has got one of the highest rates of suicide of any profession you know and and so it's something that's really relevant, you know, to to him because he's struggling with so many other, you know, things to do with farming and family and, um, you know, just his his whole, you know, livelihood is um, is so dependent on so many other factors that have nothing that's not within his control. So that's one of the reasons. And but I think having Anders come home is something that really really helps him. So it does lift that dark cloud around him, you know, reasonably quickly. And it's you know it's really lovely to see his joyful side and you know see the brothers kind of the banter. And I love this book. I mean, I absolutely love writing it. You know, like the sort of the banter between. Um, Ren with her sister Bailey who she doesn't know very well you know before this summer because she's her half sister and you know they grew up on other sides of you know different countries yeah and, um, and then also you know Anders and Jonas it's just so so lovely being able to write about banter and the you know the friendship that develops between the four of them and of course we have Bailey who's relatively newly married with her husband who is 
in the beginning, it's almost as though you there's that sense that she's not as satisfied and happy having uprooted herself to move to where his family is with her family also uprooting and she doesn't seem to be as steady and that is something that really comes across when Ren turns up and she's trying to build a bond that she hasn't previously had with her sister so the dynamics between them are really interesting to read. Oh, good. I'm glad, glad you found it interesting. I, so I, I found it really interesting just to explore because, you know, I always had the title in my mind as I was writing this book, you know, it's not just about Ren and how she feels for Anders, you know, it's about how she felt about her fiance and, you know, what happens at the beginning of the story. And, and on top of that, it's this whole dynamic with her family. You know, she's, she grew up in Bury St. Edmunds mostly, like she, she was actually born in Phoenix, Arizona and spent the first five or six years of her life living in America um, and I could write about that from experience because I spent some time there as well, you know, and, and then, you know, her, her father had an affair with a woman who fell pregnant with Bailey, um, and Ren's mother sort of packed her up and took her back home to the UK. So Ren basically grows up and she says at the beginning, she's like, and, and Bailey got to grow up with my dad as her own. So yeah. she had her dad for five years and then basically Bailey had her dad for the rest of her, you know, sort of childhood and teenage years. And now Ren's, you know, in her early thirties. And she really doesn't know her dad that well. She certainly doesn't know Bailey that well. Like the last time they saw each other was about five years ago when Bailey was 22. There's a six-year age gap between them. Um, and so that was a really nice dynamic to sort of explore because also Ren has certain preconceptions about, you know, she thinks that she thinks that um, her family are thinking certain things of her, you know, and actually the, the fact is they don't really know her that well either. And so it was really lovely to kind of unpack that, you know, and, and get them to, you know, get to know each other and, you know, realize that they might have been reading each other a bit wrong in the past. And, you know, to build that sort of sisterly bond, you know, was was really lovely. You know, I, I'm not sure I've, I haven't done that as much in other books before. Usually there's a friendship there or something. But in terms of an actual yeah. sisterly bond, you know, this was a new dynamic, really. Yeah, that's I think the only other time you have that uh, kind of confusion of relationship between father and daughter is in my favorite one. <laughs> if you could go anywhere where okay. Alice yeah. first meets her father when she's an adult, having not yes. been aware of his existence or being aware of his existence, obviously, but not actually having ever met him before. And there yeah, were a lot of preconceptions stranger. and assumptions going on with the relationship as it should be and as they want it to be. Absolutely. And I think that's what happens yeah. with Bailey and Wren in some way. Yeah. There's that assumption, oh, they don't want me here they resent me especially Cheryl and it's not that way at all yeah and I yeah and I loved uh, some of the moments that really moved me were actually the moments between Cheryl and her stepmother uh, sorry um Ren and her stepmother Cheryl yeah. um you know when Ren kind of well, like Cheryl realizes anyway I don't want to spoil it for the readers because I think <laughs> no. that's a lot of like again you know sort of how that unfolds you know that whole family dynamic I think is you know this this book it's I described it as it was definitely a slow burn, I'd say, you know, because there's quite a lot of this family stuff in there as well. And, you know, maybe the first sort of quarter or first third, you know, it takes a little while to get going with Renan and Anders because he has to keep her at arm's length for, for a reason, you know, that like there's a reason that he can't kind of. So while she has this instant attraction towards him, you know, you can't, I couldn't write in too much chemistry or too much sort of flirty banter or anything like that because there's a reason he's keeping her you know, who, why he can't move things forward. Um, 
And so, you know, there is kind of that family dynamic and unfolding, you know, in the earlier stages of the book too. And then it's kind of becomes very much, you know, Ren and Anders, you know. So if you're really looking for a romance, any of your listeners who are listening to this, if you want like a real romance, then just know that that's coming. <laughs> that's the slow burn's always good though. I like, did you, when you were writing this, did you actually ever have to go through and go, no, that can't happen yet and scroll out masses of paragraphs and things because you'd no. had the instinct. Yeah, no, I didn't actually. In fact, it was the other way around, you know, like I had it in my head. This was the first book that I've ever had to write like this, you know, where, you know, every every other one of my books, you know, there's always this moment, there's this electricity, you know, there's another reason what, which might keep them apart. But, you know, you can really sort of feel the banter and the, you know, you know, the chemistry between the characters. But with this one, because, you know, I knew that Anders could not allow himself to have feelings for Ren. And so it was hard to write about it one side and I didn't want her to be too kind of, you know, like not reading the signs or, you know, just, and she's not a girly girl or, you know, she's not sort of too, she's not heavily romantic herself. You know, she's a bit more sort of, you know, head, you know, she's an architect and just sort of a little bit more kind of, you know, like straight minded and stuff. And, um, yeah. And so it was kind of it, when I, I wrote it, like the way that I felt was realistic. And then I remember my editors, you know, my American editor in particular saying, you know, I want a bit more chemistry here. I want more chemistry here. And so, and I'm so, so glad she told me to do that because, you know, now there is more chemistry in those earlier moments, but you know, it was, it was the other way around, you know, rather than me holding back, you know, if anything, I had to give more, you know, to just sort of start building those moments and, you know, sort of pushing it, pushing it forward with the reader. That's the charm with a slow burn though. You've got the opportunity to add in the slow, but subtle build. And that's something that really comes across in this book. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, I absolutely loved having that opportunity to do that. And, um, you know, usually I write my books quite quickly and I have a, the reason there's been an 18 month turnaround for this one is not because I wrote the book. Um, you know, I've still been writing a book a year, but we basically decided well, to, to have a pause between my publishing to give me a year and a half and my publisher a year and a half to really sort of build you know, buzz for the book and, you know, get in into lots of hands and make sure there are proof copies going out to loads of people and, you know, to really, really sort of build and, you know, try and, you know, have a big splash upon publication. But that did also enable me to have a bit more time to be able to edit the book, you know, because there wasn't this, you know, usually I deliver the book and within like three to four months, it's out on the shelves, you know, it's so, so quick. And my editing process is like two week turnaround, you know, <laughs> and then it's like super, super fast. So actually to have like a couple of months to be able to come back to it and build, you know, I personally think it's the most, um, you know, I personally think it's the most polished book that I've written to date, you know, just in terms of when I can read it through and, you know, and sort of see the character development, you know, I think it's, um, I think it's, yeah, the most polished just because I've had a bit more time. So <laughs> that's the thing you were saying um, that you had a lot longer and normally you do a very, very fast turnaround. I was reading an interview that you, an article that you'd written or an essay for Novelicious, where you were talking about the writing process and how you had Lucy in the Sky was a really quick turnaround, your first book. Yes, <laughs> they've all been really quick turnarounds. And one day I'll tell you just how fast I wrote the last book that I've just delivered. <laughs> well, I saw you posting, I've written the last page. It's like, huh? <laughs> oh my God, honestly. Um, I think about my books for a long time before I come to write them. And they are so, so real inside my head. Like they are just as clear as, you know, I know exactly what's going to happen when, you know, and 
by the time I come down to write, you know, I'm really generally very, very clear. I know how it's going to end. You know, I have all these big scenes that are just, you know, crystal clear in my head. Yeah. But it takes me a while to kind of like get going with the writing and then eventually I'll just hit like my stride and often that happens in the last month you know sometimes in the last two weeks as in the last you know with the last book and I just like the words just come pouring out of me you know like just you know really really can't stop writing um so yeah usually but even even when I'm not under that pressure I it tends to take me about three months to write a book but it will usually take me like two months to write half of the book this is a general thing and it will take me a month to write another half of the book you know so that's how it's been in the past (laughs) I'm pushing it even further these days you know like I'm sort of writing even more in the last month um and I just I don't know I feel so 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 connected to my books when I'm writing them quickly like I'm completely living inside the character's head I think that's why I really do feel it all along with the characters you know I mean I just I'm I'm sobbing at the moments where my characters are sobbing, you know, like I'm so, you know, I'm feeling like jittery and goosebumpy and stuff, you know, when there's a sexy moment going on or something like that, you know, I'm just completely feeling everything that they're feeling. Um, And definitely writing the books quickly means I'm literally living inside that world with them, you know, for those last, you know, few weeks, I'm just completely immersed in their story. And yeah, that's just, that's just my process. (laughs) It's a nice process to have, though. I think it takes me when I I remember writing essays for college and I was the complete reverse. I would be writing the first part for um, a week and I'd write the last 25% in about three. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Which is which is partially down to procrastination. Would you say that because of the way that you write, you don't procrastinate at all? Or do you sit there and have to force yourself for the first part of the book? Um, I very rarely force it because I really want to feel it. You know, like I I the days that I feel quite sort of a bit blue, you know, and a bit sort of like really dejected are the days when I've not managed to write very much and it's been because I haven't really felt it and funnily enough when I go back and read those paragraphs later that they're perfectly fine like they just they don't read like I haven't felt it but I haven't felt it so I don't enjoy the process and I I love writing like and when I'm writing in those last few weeks and I'm completely feeling it you know I'm just I'm so happy you know and when I come in I've like achieved a lot of words so I I wouldn't say that I procrastinate and and also just the fact that it takes me you know maybe three months to to sit there and I you know I'll spend each day every day I'll go down and I'll sit and try and write and you know and obviously I'm doing a lot of social media and stuff like that trying to stay on top of things like that as well but um you know I'm I'm really immersed in the writing world but it might be quite slow and it might feel a little bit like in those earlier stages it might feel like I'm having to think about every sentence and, that, you know, whereas at the end, I'm not thinking at all, like it's just flying out of me, you know, it's just completely, you know, you can't, Instinct. I can't write fast enough, you know. And then the rest of the year, you know, I'm, I'm doing research for months, I'm publicising the book before, you know, I'm doing around like several rounds of editing, you know, so I'm basically working all the time, you know, so there's not, there's not a lot of room for procrastination. <laughs> 
a writer's job is 24 7 365 days a year by the sound of things yeah like literally I when I finish I I do take the summer off because I'm and when I've got the kids home you know I I don't tend to work hardly at all because that's just too difficult you know like I need to be able to lose myself in my story and if there's the kids around I want to be there and I want to you know be mum and stuff like that but I can't completely lose myself you know um so I, you know, and I do find it really, really hard to write in the summer months. You know, my head just feels like full of cotton wool and I get hay fever and I just feel really foggy and I just not clear. You know, I, I find that autumn yeah. and winter are the best times to write. Um, I can't remember where I was going with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, if you're writing in the autumn and winter, a lot of your stories have a very summer focus. So it must be quite nice to have that. I'm thinking about the sunrise and it's beautifully warm outside, even though there's two inches of snow on the ground and it's freezing cold. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely, it's a nice escape. I mean, the only downside about it is that during the time when I'm writing, like it would be lovely if I could go back and have another research trip, or I would love to be able to, you know, if I'm writing, because I have to do so much research about just like things like what flowers would be on the ground at that time of year that I'm writing about. And sometimes I just be like, oh God, if only I was there writing about this right now, you know, but that never happens because I'm always writing in the autumn and winter and summer has already gone. So, you know, I mean, obviously I've, I've been to the place probably in the summer and taken photographs and stuff, but I just, I would love to be able to sit there and actually write in it. But the, you know, obviously it would be a completely different time of year. Like I thought about going back to Indianapolis and Indiana and I was just thinking it's going to be like a foot in snow right now. (laughs) There's no point. (laughs) This winter, probably a bit more. Yeah, I'm not going to see like the, you know, the cornfields and, and stuff, you know, I'm not going to, the fireflies, you know, like I needed to have gone there in, you know, July and August to be able to do that. So yeah, I make do all with of, what I can. Yeah, all of the places you write about are, even if you're writing about um, Cambridge or Oxford or Bury St Edmunds, it's all, there is a kind of romantic veil over it, which is really lovely to read. Because oh, obviously good. reality is not quite so nice. <laughs> Well, I mean, I write about places as much as I can from, you know, from being there in reality. But yeah, you're right. You know, like I am seeing the best of places I'm writing about them because, you know, ultimately, I mean, on the whole, my, you know, my, my characters are having a nice time there, you know, like on the whole, they're there during summer or, you know, they're there sort of experiencing like the best part of that world or I'm writing a lovely scene. So, you know, um, I guess if my, in the scenes where my characters might be really miserable or when the setting might be absolutely revolting, you know then, um, you know, they're thinking about their emotions and stuff. They're not thinking about what they're seeing so much. So, you know, it's, it tends to be in those uplifting moments, like, you know, with The Minute I Saw You, which is also in Cambridge and Grantchester, you know, around near where I live. And, you know, just being able to write about, you know, those sort of picturesque, you know, river settings and, you know, the pubs and, you know, stuff like that, you know, and punting on the river and things, you know, all of that stuff usually takes place on a nice sunny day. You know, like that's the sort of thing that you you sort of seek out on a nice British sunny day, you know. And so, yeah, writing about that from experience and, you know, just thinking about, you know, what it was that I saw. But, yeah, I do I do tend to yeah. make, you know, pick the best of places when I'm writing about them. But also, you know, I feel, I feel like a sense of responsibility because if I'm writing, I always write about real places. And so if I'm writing about a real place, I don't want to, like, be pulling it apart, you know. <laughs> I'd have to, you know, I actually tend to sort of avoid that, you know. Like You'd have I, the tourist board contacting you and complaining. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That, that wouldn't do so good. I don't think that would be a great thing for a newspaper article. This author ripped us apart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I might avoid that. <laughs> yeah, that that's always a dread. I think that's always a dread. I write articles for work and the first thing I think is, 
are they going to not like what I said? I used to write about cars and I even got contacted by Bloomberg because I'd written something about BMW. I was like, oh, really? Oh, oh, yes. No. I was like, I, I feel uncomfortable now. I don't want to be asked any more questions. Oh. <laughs> it's what I think it's one of those things that you want to be making things look the best that you can and all of the places that you write about. I mean, I've never been as much as I want to. I've never been to Cambridge. And obviously that's featured in a few of your novels. Yes. Yeah. Um, the first time I wrote about it was in One Perfect Summer. Um, and we had moved to Cambridge at the point in the in the story that I was writing about Alice moving to Cambridge. Um, so that was that, you know, I, I've always described that as a magical and I can't think of a better word because, you know, whenever I do book research, whenever I go to places to research them, I feel like I'm I feel like I live there, you know, like I'm, I'm imagining living there. And when I leave, I feel sad, you know, I feel like I've, you know, taken a piece of that place with me. And if I ever go back again in the future, you know, I actually sort of feel this weird kind of melancholy because I'm like, you know, really feeling so connected to the books and feeling like what the character felt like as they were there, you know, it was really sort of strange. Um, I feel kind of sad, you know, to return. I'm never going to feel more than that with the next book that I've, that I've just finished writing, um, which is set in St. Agnes in Cornwall. And I just, I feel like such a wrench every time I think of the place and we're going back there soon. I know that it's going to be quite hard to go back and, you know, be there and remember the story that, you know, what has, what has happened there? You know, it's, it's a really weird kind of phenomenon, but with Cambridge, I live here. So I could write about it and then I got to stay. And so every time I walk over the bridges, you know, and see the colleges, you know, I can almost imagine, you know, Alice and Joe still living here and it makes me, you know, makes me sort of feel full of joy. And, and then the same with the minute I saw you actually being able to write about another part of Cambridge and Grantchester um you know again I was able to write about places that I actually go to myself so that just again just brought me so much happiness because I you know I I, I get to live in this beautiful place that I've written about <laughs> that's, that's the thing I mean in uh in Alice and Joe's story Cambridge is almost a character on it on its own because there's so much about it the walks the bridges the punting and everything else that makes it really come alive for even for people who've never been there Oh, well, that's great. I mean, that's what I wanted, you know, and, and certainly, like I say, just, I could really throw my heart and soul into that research because, you know, like I say, I, I just moved here. So it was really, really nice to be able to learn quite a lot about the history and get to see behind the scenes of the colleges and, you know, sort of, I still remember so much of the research and, um, you know, it's, yeah, I recommend it. I recommend sort of like doing research on your own hometown. Like it just brings it to life. <laughs> I live in a hometown. I live in a town on the coast, so we have quite a lot of history here, and beaches with lots of pebbles, which they put in purely because of flood protection. It used to have a sandy beach, so no way. How interesting! I live. Well, I live in Sussex, so oh wow! At some point, you can base a book down here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Traveling along the coast to Devon or Cornwall. Oh, nice. <laughs> that's that's it. That I mean, you have written so many characters that are larger than life, but at the same time, incredibly real. If someone said to you, we're going to make a film or a miniseries, say Netflix came to you and said, we're going to make a film or a miniseries, and you can pick the book, would you automatically know which one you'd go for? Or would it be a case of thinking about it for a very long time before just doing an uh, sort of <laughs> one potato, two potato. <laughs> um, 
I think all of my books would work on screen, like just from from the concepts that they've got and, um, you know, the, how vivid they look inside my head and the locations. I think they would work, you know, really nicely on screen. Absolutely. I, I've thought about this a few times. Um, and I'd love to see Chasing Daisy as a film. I think that'd be because I love Formula One. And I can really imagine that doing, especially with Netflix Drive to Survive and stuff. But I also think with the Johnny B. Good series, because that is a series and there's so much scope for where it goes and what happens, you know, with you know, you finding out that he's eventually got a teenage daughter and, you know, what and happens And the series, Jesse Jefferson afterwards. Yeah, I can really sort of see that as like a, you know, a mini series, which just kind of continues. And I would love to see that continue because I don't feel like I've got the time to come back to their story, but I so want to see what happens to them. And I would love that to, you know, kind of continue with someone else writing it and taking it further because, you know, I've got all these different ideas and, um yeah but I just in terms of finding the time to sit down and write anymore you know it's just it's been almost impossible um I'd love to see only love can hurt like this on the screen you know I think I think this one would would work really beautifully I can really picture it um that'd be a wonderful I think this one would be a really good film yeah I think it'd be the location as well yeah and I think my next one I can I can really really see like I just I I can't wait to tell readers about that one (laughs) oh dear it's always that way though the minute you've do you always as you said you've written you're always working so when you were finishing only love can hurt like this were you already in the planning stages for the next book yes I was um but the, the weird thing is because of the way I used to work with my old publisher when I used to I used to write a book deliver a book edit the book and the book would come out then I'd publicize that book and then I'd start thinking about the next one. So I was in like this lovely sort of, you know, year long circle where it's all about the one book and then I'm on to the next one. And that was really contained. And that's actually very unusual. Like normally it works the way that I'm currently working, which is you write a book, you, you know, edit the book, you, and then you publicize the book before that. <laughs> so, so what I've done with this one, for example, is that I've, you know, I wrote Only Love Can Hurt Like This a whole like year ago it was all edited you know a year ago and in the meantime after that I've gone on and I've written another book and I've edited and I've, I'm in the editing process of the other book wow. at the moment and only love can hurt like this is coming out so um you know so I'm I'm my head is very very full of my new characters and you know but it's it's actually really lovely because I'm bringing it back out now and I'm actually just rereading only love can hurt like this at the moment and, you know, and just feeling so connected again to Ren and Anders and their story. And because I'm, I'm obviously going to be talking about it a lot now for the next Absolutely. few weeks, you know, and so it's lovely to sort of get back into, you know, thinking about Only Love Can Hurt Like This. But it's also slightly, just slightly strange because I also just want to shout to you all about, I can't wait for you to meet, you know, Finn and Liv, <laughs> and Tom, you know, wait till you meet them. You're going to go crazy for them, you know, like they're going to break your heart. <laughs> So it's really hard, you know, to sort of just be juggling them both. But, you know, ultimately, yeah, that is that is normal. Well, that's a ni- that's a nice promise, though. They're going to break your heart is a lovely promise for romantic readers. Oh, <laughs> I just, that book. Oh, my God, it just killed me. I just, <laughs> oh, dear. When anyway. you reread Only Love Can Hurt Like This, did you read it as a reader or did you read it as the writer? I read this book so many times, like so many more times than um, I had to read any of my other books in the past because I went through, you know, rounds of editing with my UK editor. Then I got an American editor, went through some more rounds of editing with her. 
had two different copy edits, you know, two different sort of type, you know, like page proofs because the American page proofs as well as the British. So I have read it so many times. And every time I've read it, I've, I've read it as a reader. <laughs> you know, I genuinely have. I, I mean, obviously I see things, you know, that I might think, oh, I can tweak that or I'd like to change that. And even now on this reread, I'm sort of like, oh, I wish I put that sentence above that one, you know, just like <laughs> the odd little thing. Um, but on the whole, I can kind of forget that I wrote them and I can just enjoy the journey because, you know, I loved writing this book. So, you know, as, as long as I'm connected to it and really enjoying the writing process, then it should follow that I enjoy reading it, you know, because ultimately I'm going on the same journey with them. I'm just not having to get the words out of my head onto paper. You know, I can just now just enjoy the journey that I've constructed. But, you know, as I say, they feel so real to me before I even come to write them that, you know, when I'm that's just basically how I'm remembering it. I will still read things like if I read my old books now, I'll be like, oh, you know, quite like that sentence. And I'll just completely have forgotten that I, you know, that I wrote it myself, you know, just like a way of sort of saying something, you know, it just, yeah, it's weird. It's very weird. I know, yeah, I, I know obviously it's it's different for everyone. You know, I know a lot of other authors who can't stand to read their own work. What I find difficult is listening to the audiobook. Um, and I haven't listened to any of my audiobooks. I've only listened to tiny snippets. And I find that hard because, um you know, intonation will be put on a different, in a different way than I yeah. would have said it. So I hear things in my head and I know exactly how the, you know, how the characters are speaking. And then, you know, it'll be sort of said slightly differently. And obviously that's the case for everyone who reads my books. They're not, they, they're reading it and they're putting their own intonation on them. But it has made me think, oh my God, if my books ever were made into a film, it would be a nightmare. <laughs> you know? I would be, I think I'd find it really, really hard because they feel so, so real to me as books that to actually see somebody else take them to the, you know, and like to lose control in that sense and, you know, have a an actor or actress put, you know, put their own spin on, you know, different words and stuff, you know, which I just, it would be very hard. I'd have to totally, totally let go of that book, you know. Do you ever so, yeah. cast them with actors and actresses you've seen as you're creating the actual book or do you not do that just because you'd be losing an element of control yeah no it's not it's it's more just um they don't look like anyone inside my head like they look like fictional characters so why I while I might have seen like a celebrity and thought oh I like you know I like his hair or you know I like his dimples or something like that you know and I might write a character who's got dimples like one of my, my new characters got dimples and you know and I sort of like but then I'll be thinking oh I'm imagining their eyes and they're totally different and and now inside my head like I Anders I can see him so so clearly and he looks like nobody in the world you know like he I, it would be really hard to cast him that's why casting directors are so good at their jobs you know <laughs> I have since sort of thought oh you know that you know, that actor could make a good Anders or, you know, that one could make a, you know, good Anders, but, you know, like, yeah. Element. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take his, I'll take his dimples, his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's hard. I think that's what Pinterest is so useful for. <laughs> yes, yeah, I don't go on Pinterest that much. Um, it would be, yeah, it'd be good to, good to go on there a little bit more. I'd love to do a few reels and things like that, you know, with the inspiration, but. Yeah, that's just another element of social media that I probably can't take on because I'm already struggling to stay on top of like Facebook and Twitter and, and Instagram. <laughs> that, that's it. You um you do all of your own socials. And yes. uh, as someone who does theirs as well, it is incredibly time consuming. And you produce a lot for social. 
Yeah, I don't. I mean, sometimes you know, I might not post anything for a week. You know, like some, like it just depends on whether or not I've got content that I want to share. Um, obviously, at the moment, I've got quite a lot of content because the book's coming out. So yeah. you know, and I've got you know, really great American, a really great UK publisher who are giving me some really fantastic graphics and different sort of things that I can use, you know, I can post online. Um, so that's been, that's been really helpful. So yeah, I'm busier than ever at the moment on social media and that's not going to let up anytime soon because <laughs> when the book comes out and I really love to reply to my readers, but I don't know how long I'm going to be able to keep that up, but you know, I'll certainly try as, as long as I possibly can to reply to every person. With your, uh, you said that you've got, obviously you had American edits and UK edits. Does that mean that the two copies of the book are different or did you integrate the comments from both editors into one finalized version of the book? Yeah, I integrated them all, you know, like they're all the same apart from Americans got Americanized spelling. So they've got I's, you know, like Z instead of as S. Um, and there might be just a couple of really minor things, you know, where Americans use feet and yards and it might have felt more comfortable to me because obviously in, in, you know, Britain, we use feet and yards and in the metric system. So yeah. it's not, you know, it's not a big deal to be interchangeable. Um, but I think there's like one instance where I was like, oh, I think that reads better as meters. So I'm just going to leave it as meters for the UK edition. And I just changed the American, you know, so there's just like a couple of really small things like that. There might be couch instead of sofa, for example, and, you know, just like a couple of things like that. But it's anyone reading it, I would be surprised if they could notice any differences. I was going to say we're quite flexible, I think, over here with that specific terminology like sweater and sneaker yeah. and everything yeah. else. We didn't yeah. use anything. <laughs> You know, one of the weird things was sort of writing American dialogue because like there's a sec there's a, and I think I might have just changed it and kept the UK for this because for example um over here we say Lego <laughs> you know my character Ren when she was a child she used to yes. build houses out of bricks she's an architect and um so over here we say Lego but um in America they say Legos and so they've put on the end and you know her dad says I remember when we had a whole bag full of Legos and I sort of thought oh that is going to read really weird for a UK audience you know yes. if I, like, I think that's a typo <laughs> so I think for the UK one I took the S off you know just just sort of thought I'd rather it didn't stand out to them but you know in America it's correct for Americans so. that is <laughs> so. a really random one Lego and Legos yeah. I didn't know that <laughs> Yeah, there's a few little things like that. Like I, I, before the book went to American editors, before it went out, you know, like for sale in America, um, you know, I have a really great American friend who read the book for me. So she was the one who was kind of like helping me with the dialogue and just making sure it was things that, you know, Americans would say, you know, the same sort of terminology and stuff, you know, because it is slightly different. You'd be surprised at how many differences there are, but they're all really subtle. Yeah, I imagine so. I think that's one of the things that we don't notice so much because when I think a large number of American published books are printed the same over here as they are in the US, whereas I think there's a difference when books are published over here and in the US. At yeah, least I've noticed yeah. that when I've purchased books in the US. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Which isn't, quite which isn't necessarily a bad thing. No, you know, and and I think Americans are quite used now to reading you know, reading sort of British, more British sort of books and more British criticisms and stuff like that in there. Um, so it is, it is very flexible. I think, you know, it's, it's certainly not jarring. I don't think, you know, it feels really, I think it feels really smooth when you're reading it. Yeah, absolutely. With these, with obviously Ren and Anders, you've now got, I think it's 16 full length adult contemporary romance and 13 YA and obviously all your short stories. Do you have a favorite 
couple or pair of characters or is it every single book creates a new just a new member of the family to say I love these people I definitely love like every character and I know I feel like I still know all of my main characters inside out you know like I I remember their stories so so well you know I remember what they've been through you know and what makes them tick you know they it's kind of nuts to me I was only thinking about this the other day that I've just written about you know two more leading men in the in the last book mm. And I'm just head over heels in love with them. And, you know, I mean, I literally have had a love story with each of my characters, you know, as I'm writing them, like so in love with Anders, you know, like he's just, he, oh, I just adore him, you know. Um, the characters who I remember at the time sort of writing the book and sort of saying, I think they're my favourite characters were Hannah and Sonny from The Minute I Saw You. Mm. And maybe it's partly because that's, it, that book is set in Cambridge where I live, so I felt very connected to that story, but... They go through, I would say that's my lightest and my darkest book rolled into one. Like, you know, they, you know, there's so much sort of chemistry between them and, you know, they try to be friends, but, you know, Sonny's like sworn off sex. So there's not going to happen. <laughs> nothing's going to happen between them, you know. Um, but then the darkness, you know, about his past and what, you know, the reason that he's kind of come to this, yeah. you know, this reasoning is really dark. So they go through such a sort of journey together that I just, I've, I will always have such a spot, a really, really big soft spot for them. And Bridget, I think, has always been one of my favourite female characters. Like, I just loved her, you know, thought she was so fun. She's someone I really want to be friends with. Um, but, you know, I'd love each and every one of them. Like, there's not a single one of my characters who I'm like, mm, yeah, you know, could could leave him, you know, take him or leave him, you know. <laughs> or or the girls. The main know, characters. Really. There are a few characters that you've created, I think, at least as a as a reader, I've read them and gone, didn't like that person. But I think you're not yeah. meant to. <laughs> yeah, no, well, certainly that's the case with, I'm talking about like my main characters, like, yeah. like you know, inside like the, I'm I'm living inside the heroine's head as that heroine is falling in love with the hero, you know, like, so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, some of them are really badly flawed, like Johnny Jefferson, for example. I mean, it, it amazes me how much my readers absolutely love him. <laughs> but everybody <laughs> loves a flawed so hero. Bad. I know well, he's very much he's very flawed but he does come good obviously you know but not not maybe not as quickly as some people would like um but yeah you know I've got a soft spot for all of them it's really hard hard not to be but yes you know obviously there are there are villains and you know villainesses throughout especially with my young adult series you know I can remember sort of writing from the Johnny Jefferson series like Dana you know like Johnny's yeah. Johnny's um girlfriend in the second book baby me mine you know like she's Oh, horrendous. And it's quite fun writing a villain, you know. <laughs> that I think that's it though, isn't it? It's it's one of those we have you have to take the rough with the smooth with all of these books and all of these characters. And one of the things I've noticed and I loved about your books is the fact that even subtly in some cases, there are Easter eggs and they're linked. Was that something you you intend you planned out and you've got a massive great big map somewhere that you plot and you go right that character I'm gonna I'm gonna use them or is it something that just happens because they're in the situation when you're writing it firstly can I just apologize for the meow my cat has come and sat on the windowsill now and she's looking at me and she'll probably meow again <laughs> okay my cat's in the in the kitchen waiting for me to feed her <laughs> um yes so in terms of the linking of the characters um that's a tricky one uh I, the reason I first started doing that was because I loved reading Marion Keyes's Walsh Sisters and I remember 
you know, reading Watermelon and then reading Rachel's Holiday and getting like this little mention of Claire and Adam and just being so, so loving it so much, you know, the fact that this world was was still kind of existing, you know, outside of my imagination. Um, and so that made me really happy to read that. And then with my, so when I was writing Lucy in the Sky, I remember thinking, oh, I'd love to be able to mention them again. I was editing Lucy in the Sky at the time, about to start writing Johnny Be Good. And I was just like, oh, you know, I wish there was some way of kind of linking them. And I remember thinking, well, actually, Lucy's stepbrother's girlfriend, <laughs> especially a minor character, like she's only, she's there, she's mentioned, you know what she looks like, you know, you know what her name is, but she could be the main character of my next book. And then that gives, you know, us a chance to just hear about, you know, Lucy and Nathan and just sort yeah. of, you know, she had this phone conversation where, where we actually get a mention of them. Um, so that was kind of, you know, that was really nice to include that. And I've just, in, I've just done that ever since in terms of a map. Yes. I've have had readers who've done maps for me. I've got this lovely reader, Pernil, who actually sent me a giant magnetic board with all these magnets, you know, for them all the link. And it just, but it, honestly, it does my head in when I look at it. There are so many linking characters. Um, so it's just funny. Some, someone will just kind of push forward to the forefront and I'll think, you know, I'd love to include them and, you know, even in in um, even in only love can hurt like this. You know, there's a mention of a chasing Daisy character, and there's also a mention of such small bit part character. But like the architect that Meg works for at the beginning of the book as her PA is mentioned in this book. You know, like she's actually an architect who Ren went to work for. So it's such a small little Easter egg. Like you, you just most people would not see it. You know. Um, but it gives me a bit of pleasure, you know, to sort of mention it. And obviously, Anders, as he works for for an IndyCar team as a race engineer, yeah. there's a mention there about, you know, um, Luis Castro, <laughs> who's like the Chasing Daisy and, you know, what he's kind of up to and stuff. So it's nice to be able to include those because I do think about all these characters just going on and living, living their own sort of like, you know, lives in this parallel universe that exists with all of them in it. <laughs> yeah, and also, of course, there are the short stories that you've done, the novellas, that kind of they don't exactly close off the story but they give you another insight like a an extra epilogue yes I loved being able to do those and interestingly um those three novellas like the first one I wrote was for one perfect summer and it was I remember my the book had come out and I remember lots of readers saying you can't leave it there I want a sequel and then my publisher just saying to me there's this new thing there's you know ebook short stories um, we'd love you to do an ebook short story sequel to, to, you know, One Perfect Summer. And that was amazing, like to be able to write a little bit more of that without having to write a whole sequel, because I already had the idea for The Longest Holiday, and that was the book that I really wanted to write. Um, so yeah, so I didn't want to kind of like, you know, uh, write an entire book, but just to be able to sort of go on and finish it. And then the other one that I did was 13 Weddings. I wrote a sequel to that. Um, and again, that book left my readers the most torn, you know, about in terms of who they wanted the heroine to end up with. Um, and so, yeah, so, so again, that kind of, that was the one that readers were really crying out to hear a bit more of it. And I had to wait, I waited about four years before I wrote the sequel to that one, because I was just like, you know, it, the need, enough time needs to go under the, you know, enough water needs to go under the bridge before I can come back to that story. And then of course there's Johnny, you know, Johnny Jefferson and, Baby Be Mine, again, readers had to wait three years for that sequel because I needed to be in the right frame of mind to come back to it. And then, you know, there's just so much more scope for that story. With And then, you know, of course, with, you yeah. have Johnny's Girl and then Jen yes. uh, all of the Jesse Jefferson series as well. Yeah. yeah so you, her, their story was kind of 
you got the continuation. I loved um, One Perfect Summer and the closure that you got with their story with Joe and Alice was wonderful because they'd been through so much and there had been so much disruption in the characters' lives to get to where they ended up. So it was not seeing that it did work out rather than that doubt because sometimes it fades to black and you think, oh, did it really work? (laughs) Yeah, you know, like that was my most unsatisfying ending I think that I've ever written. And at the time it didn't feel like it was unsatisfying. At the time I was just like, oh, yeah, there's my ending, you know, and kind of I left it. But but now when I read them together, I, I would love to have like one day for One Perfect Summer to be reprinted together with One Perfect Christmas because I think that they really you really do need One Perfect Christmas to finish it off. Yeah, I, d- I think that I re- when I read them, I do read them together. So that yeah. you get the, the end that really you feel that it needed. Yeah. But absolutely. it was also nice. I mean, they were an Easter egg <laughs> as well. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, they crop up and, you know, they. I mean, I loved riding them into the minute I saw you. And, you know, I think A Christmas Wedding, which is a sequel to um, to 13 Weddings, is one of my favourite stories I've ever written because that includes so many characters of my backlist, you know. Yeah. Um, it brings together so many different stories. I remember someone saying to me, you just needed Johnny Jefferson to go to the wedding and then you would have had, you know, like those characters in there too. <laughs> but I, was That's like, it. Oh, I think 13 Weddings was the one where it really becomes clear that they're so interlinked. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Certainly, certainly the sequel, like I say, you know, I think that that has, you know, has almost everyone in there, which is fun. Now you've finished, obviously you finished and you're now in the editing cycle with the next book. Are you, look? are you already planning out the next one? Yes, <laughs> I am. <laughs> That's very much coming together inside my head at the moment. Yeah, I've just done... Um, I'm just it's going to be set in Wales actually so I've got like two research plans to Wales you know like planned for the for the next few months and um and yeah I'm just like it's it's coming together it's still it's still a work in progress like I've got a general idea but I'm still you know building on the characters and and just working out exactly what their what their plans will be so I would hope to have all of that completely ready to go for September when I start writing. Wow. And are you, so you do your, obviously you you do your research trips. Are you a big planner with a notebook or do you have loads of files and maps and everything else on a computer? Um, I have a notebook. Yeah. And I, and most of it's in my head, you know, like it really genuinely is inside my head. You know, that's, it's like, you know, crazy, (laughs) crazy inside there (laughs) with all the juggling that's going on. (laughs) So you're not uh, like the character in the last piece of you're the last piece of my heart. <laughs> no, the, not the author who passed, sadly passes away and her, her next sequel book is almost planned out in her journal. Yes, no, I'm not like her at all. <laughs> <laughs> is that why you created her like that? Um, I think I was just, yeah, I mean, she needed to be like that because of, of the way things work out with, um, you know, with Bridget having to take yeah. over her story and finish writing it um you know so so Bridget needed to have some clues as to as to where to take it and how to go but yeah that's not me you won't like if I you know if I if something happened to me you would not find like the answers in there (laughs) in any of my notebooks you know it's very much inside my head like that'd be that'd be it (laughs) go with me to my grave (laughs) oh don't say that that reminds me of the Melissa Nathan (laughs) oh yeah oh no don't I remember reading her last book and getting it 
from the bookshop and opening it up and reading the front page where it said, sadly, she passed away. And it was like, I was standing in the center of town in tears because all I could think was, that means no more books. (laughs) I know. It was so, I mean, that was incredibly tragic. And that in a way made me think of it because obviously that was it. There was nothing else after that. And you think it's amazing that this is it, that there is no more. Because some people are just that creative. Everything is in their heads, the characters, the the creation in general, the entire plot line with just, this is where I'm basing it <laughs> on yeah. the notebook. Well, you know, the idea for the last piece of my heart, which is the one we're talking about at the moment with yeah. Bridget, um, actually came because I was in the car, I was riding the sun and her eyes and, um, and I was about, I was approaching like the fire, the bushfire scene, which is a really, really yeah. kind of key moment book and it's you know like something really explosive happens in it and um and I just couldn't wait to write the scene and I was driving to an event and we had a couple of near misses in the car like I'm not a very sort of good backseat passenger anyway <laughs> but um my friend was driving <laughs> and um and I was just thinking god you know if I died now I'd be so angry like not being able to finish this book and I was thinking well, imagine, imagine if my publisher like, drafted in a ghostwriter to finish writing my book. I'd come back and haunt them if they didn't get the chemistry right. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and I remember sort of like telling the story to my friend and her husband. He, her husband's really creative and he was just like, ghostwriter. You know, that's the name, that's the title for the book. You know? <laughs> and I thought, well, okay, I'm not going to write a thriller, but going on, you know, in the future. I basically sort of realized that that story in itself would be a good story to tell as romantic fiction, you know, an author kind of, you know, another writer coming along and having to finish, you know, the book that's left behind by an, a late author. So yeah, that is the story for the last piece of my heart. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the story behind that and obviously the relationship that builds for Bridget and everything else is incredibly moving to the yeah. backdrop, to, to the backstory of everything that's happening in the book that she's writing. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So it was, that was really sad. But then I like a book that makes me cry. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that somehow it make me cry. But no, I, no, I think so long as that's still uplifting too. You know, like I, I don't want to write. I don't. I don't write. I don't write sad stories. You know, they're not sad stories at all. No. You know, they're sort of they're happy stories and they're full of hope and they're very uplifting. But there will be a sad moment in there, or there'll be some some emotional moment in all of my books that will kind of tug at your heartstrings and you know ultimately you know you want the readers to you know you want the characters to overcome those somehow and move forward and sometimes my novels are bittersweet you know like there's not necessarily you don't necessarily end up with the ending that you want you know and certainly you've seen sequels for some of those (laughs) Um, I mean the sun in her eyes is probably one that the ending wasn't what you expected it to be yeah, yeah. I mean that 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 was that was an, like a different book to anything that I've ever written before because you know the person who you're kind of rooting for turns out to be maybe not the person that you want to be rooting for. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like, you, all the way through, it's like, oh, he's really no, 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 he's not actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. Yeah. Certainly, there's a whole other universe happening out there. <laughs> yeah, and that's. I mean, this, that brings it back round to only love can hurt like this with the the emotion and the emotive characters because you really feel for Ren and Anders and everyone else in the book because they are going through so many things but they're still having to function and then there's obviously the chemistry 
and Ren's concern for her sister with Jonas getting too close to him because she's married and the relationship with her parents and her ex-fiance. It was lovely to see that there, though she was so angry at him, she was she was kind of not closing herself off to emotion, but she was yeah. matter of fact about it. Yeah, I think she could see that he's, you know, ultimately her fiance is a good guy. And, um, you know, it wasn't his fault that he fell in love with someone else, you know, like sometimes and, and I have always written books, you know, I've often written books from when it's the other way around, you know, and there's a um, just a little snippet on my Instagram page of um, of Gemma Whelan reading, reading a section from the book and, you know, and it was this whole idea of, you know, you see it on the films and you see them kind of like, you know, the the heroine sort of with a, a man who doesn't really understand them. And, um, you know, you're kind of rooting for her to get with a guy who really does. And I just sort of thought, imagine being the other way around, you know, imagine being the woman whose partner actually gets with the girl. And, you know, you're, you're aware that actually his true love is this girl, not you. <laughs> and you'd be that person who's there sort of hurting and full of the pain, you know. And so that's Ren's story, basically. You know, she's the... She's the one who who is not, you know, the one, you know, for yeah. her for her say. But she kind of understands it too, because, you know, ultimately, yeah, she ultimately, you know, she understands that he has to follow his heart. Yeah, because if she stood in the way of it, would it would that be making her feel any better? Yes. <laughs> would that um, be making yeah. her feel any better? So you're yeah. going uh, on a book tour around Waterstones, I believe in the country yeah. so yes. what, what dates can people see you um well check out my instagram page i've got all the dates on there um the first event well the first event is on the 29th at blue water that's just a signing so you can just turn up from 12 o'clock waterstones blue water um it'd be lovely to see lots of people there and and then after that the next one is birmingham second of may and then third of may london piccadilly and then i'm also going to manchester and liverpool so um I met there may be other dates in the summer these are kind of like the you know where we had the most demand and where you know where the, the stores kind of like came through so I've had quite a lot of readers saying what about Scotland and you know what about the southeast and I'm like I would love to go there believe me you know I've sort of said to my publisher I will go anywhere but um you know ultimately they do have to they have to work with the waterstones and the ones that want to hold events and things like that absolutely so and that's where we'll start and um yeah hopefully see lots of people at those locations and that's <laughs> next week isn't it the 20 oh god it is yeah, next week, Saturday. Yep. So not far at all. And of course, the book comes out on the twenty fifth in the US, which is next Tuesday, and next Thursday in the UK. That's right. Yep. So and, and Wednesday in in Germany. You know, like this is the first wow. time I've had my book simultaneously published in Germany. So that'd be really nice. Normally they run about three or four years behind. So <laughs> translations <laughs> take time. They do. Yeah. Stop this one. <laughs> no, it's well, it's taken I suppose because the run-up has been longer this time yeah exactly. well that's another reason for doing you know having that space between you know between delivering the book and, and having it come out is gives everybody behind the scenes a bit more time to make things happen and you know just the fact that I've got a, a US release this time you know that's that's really exciting you know that would not have happened if I had stuck to my original publication schedule because the US likes to have books well in advance you know so that's happened this time around and and they're you know signed up for a few more books too so it's quite exciting that's that's fantastic well thank you ever so much for coming on and talking with me and I cannot wait to get my copy of the book on Thursday even though I have read it I'm going to probably read it again 
Oh, lovely. Thank you. Thanks so much. It's been so nice to talk to you. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. And as I said, next week the book is coming out. So don't forget to get your copy. Oh, thank, <laughs> thank you. you. <laughs> Cheers. Take Bye. care. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. And thank you again to my guest, the author, Paige Toon. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family? And please post a star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of the other podcatchers where you listen. You can follow me on Twitter at being underscore bookish and on Instagram at beingbookishpod. Or you can check out my website, beingbookish.co.uk. Well, I've got a lot to get ready for next week and many new books are calling me. So until next time, this is me saying farewell. Farewell.